All right, well, good morning, Crossroads. It is good to be here at our North Glen campus. I want to welcome those of you at Thornton, Fort Lupton Online, wherever you may be, as we gather together around God's Word. If you are new with us today, uh, man, it is a pleasure to have you. And if we haven't yet had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads Church, and it's a privilege and honor of mine to be able to open God's Word with you today as we continue to worship and praise the name that is above every name uh, by looking into God's word together. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 147. Psalm 147 is where we're going to get started in a few moments as we open God's word together. Uh, If you've been a part of Crossroads uh, for the last couple of years, and specifically the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in a bit of a whirlwind kind of season here at Crossroads. Uh, On January 1st of this year, Pastor Kim, our senior pastor of 28 years, uh, retired from that position. I took that position over as the senior pastor of this church. And then last week, uh, we had a big old celebration uh, for Pastor Kim, a big old party throughout last week afternoon. How many kind of show of hands, all three of our campuses, how many were you able to attend? Yeah, look at all those hands. Yeah, we had over 1,600 people uh, attend those parties, and it was a blast. It was super fun. And probably the coolest part for me was to be able to sit back and hear all of the stories from people, from people in this church, in the community, uh, even around the world, and the impact that Pastor Kim has had over really his 28 years as senior pastor, almost 40 years of ministry in this church. And um, it was just an exciting time and just a, a complete honor to be a part of that and to actually have a significant role in planning that and all of that. And so I'm thankful for Pastor Kim and his ministry here and uh, the way that he's going to continue here over the next several years running a residency program uh, for us here at Crossroads Church. So with that kind of done and a bow put on that uh, chapter of Crossroads season or life, Uh, We now move into a new season together with me leading uh, this church as its senior pastor. And last year when we were gathering together in the summer and really planning out 2020 and what the sermon series were going to be like, and we knew that we were going to continue to walk through Luke, we knew that we had some other ideas, but when it came to January of 2020, we really prayed and thought through what would it look like uh, or what kind of series would be needed for this season as I step into this role. And all of the preaching team together kind of collectively thought, you know what would be a really great series is a series that we would just simply call Heartbeat. A series where I would just get the opportunity to share my heartbeat with the church, the things that drive me, the things that I'm passionate about in life, in ministry, in my leadership. And so really over the course of these uh, several weeks, my only goal has been that God would use this to get you to see a little bit of who I am, the way that he's created me to be. And at the end of the day, at the very end of the day, that you would be able to see the way that God has moved in my life as he's, as he's made me who I am in order to, to lead this church for this season that we're now in as your senior pastor. And so if you were here the first week, the first week of January, I talked about that real first passion, that first heartbeat of mine, that first foundational pillar when it comes to my life, and that is God's glory. That when I, and if you were here, I kind of shared a little story uh, of my life and, and how God brought me to this particular college. And in my first class, my freshman year, I read this book by John Piper called Desiring God and how it absolutely rocked my world. And it, God used this book not for me just to take like a little step forward, but a huge leap forward in my faith. And after reading that book and struggling through that book for the first time ever in my life, even though I was a believer, for the first time ever in my life, there was this real desire, this real heartbeat to be about God's glory. And out of that season of my life came a life verse out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he says these words to them, whether you're eating or drinking, whatever it is that you're doing, 
in your marriage, in your vocation, in your singleness, in your parenting, in your, in your entertainment. Whatever it is that you're doing, you do it for the glory of God. And for the last 20 years or so of my life that, that I've tried to live that out to the best that I could, reminding myself regularly of that verse, that in everything that I do, whatever it is that I do, that I'm to do it for the glory of God. Then last week, if you were here, I, I shared about another passion in my life, the, the passion, my passion for, for God's word, for the Bible. And, and I know for some of you, like, that's a prerequisite to being a pastor, and it is probably, but, but my love for the Bible was there way before I even thought about becoming a pastor. See, as I've lived throughout my life, I've just kind of realized that, that if ultimately our goal is to bring glory to God in whatever it is that we do, and bringing glory to God is really by enjoying him and delighting in him, then I have to take Jesus' words serious in John 15. When Jesus says this, that I've spoken these things to you, that I've given you these words, these readable words, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And I'm telling you, there's just something in me that as I read those words, as I, that there's something in me that just excites me because I want that joy in my life. And I want that joy for you. And I want that joy for, for our community, that I, want, that I want our whole community to be filled with the joy that only Jesus can bring into this world. And so last week at the end of, of the sermon, I just asked, I just, just almost on a whim, just told you that, that this year I've committed to reading the Bible in its entirety. And wondering if you would join with me in that. Not in a program or any kind of structured way, but if we would just commit as a church to reading through the entirety of the scriptures this year. And as we prayed, I asked people to raise their hands. And, and at all three of our campuses, there were so many hands that were raised. And I'm telling you, in that moment, my joy was full. My joy was full. And so today we enter into week three of this series of Heartbeats. Having talked about the glory of God and, and my passion for the word of God. And today, I want to share with you my heartbeat really for what I would call God's mission. That when Jesus came into this world, he said these words, that I've come here to seek and save that which is lost. That God's mission is to bring people home. We call this the gospel, the good news that saves lives. And so as we jump into this today, I want to share a story with you of a man named Hobart. Hobart lived in Portsmouth, Ohio, and he was the son of some immigrants from Ireland. And truth be told, Hobart was not a good man at all. He wasn't a very good man at all. He was a womanizer. He was a drunk. He was selfish in almost every way. Hobart would eventually marry, start a family, have a young son named Kenneth, but that marriage would, would end shortly thereafter because of the sudden death of his wife. That a little bit later, a short time later, he would meet another woman, a woman named Mabel, and they would fall in love, at least Mabel would, with Hobart. They would get married, and, and they too would start a family together. And things weren't always good between Mabel and Hobart because of Hobart's way of living. There was very rarely enough money. There was constant drinking, fighting, bickering, stress, and tension throughout the family, that it was dysfunctional in every way. But somehow through those years, they managed to, to stay together. They had four kids, Juanita, who was the oldest daughter, Virgil, Virgil's twin sister, Annie, and then a son named Billy. And with Kenneth in the household from the first marriage, it was a full house during the Depression years. In 1942, tragedy struck this family with Mabel's passing. And unlike Hobart, who had very little interest in being a parent, Mabel was a really great mother. She cared deeply for her kids. She was the glue that held the family together in its toughest times. That after, right after, immediately after Mabel's funeral, Hobart came up to Virgil and told Virgil that he didn't have the space to take care of all of these kids. 
He said that he had found a place for the girls to stay with cousins, but the boys, they needed to be out on their own, that it was time for them to make a way for their own way in this life. And so Virgil at age 13 and his brother Billy at the age 12, with no place to go, headed out on their own. Over the next month or so, they were traveling from place to place, doing whatever they could just to survive. Eventually, they ended up in the hollers of a small farming community in Lewisburg, Kentucky, and they found a farmer there who would take them out in. After weeks on the road, Virgil and Billy found a place to stay, working for this old cranky farmer named John Trimble. They made an arrangement with this farmer, and the arrangement was this, that they would work for this farmer, and in return, that they would get room and board. They would have food to eat and a place to stay, but no money, no time for school, no time for friends, just hard work. Being hungry with no place to go, no real life to speak of, they jumped at the offer. The work was hard, the days were long, and many thought, many thought that old John Tremble was taking advantage of these young boys, their youth and their circumstance in this world. But for Virgil and Billy, they were best friends. At least they were together and they had a place to lay their head at night. And for that, they were grateful. Just down the hill was a Christian family, the Dickinson family. And in this family was the mother, and her name was Dee. And Dee was a wonderful woman. And this family and their four kids somehow survived the Depression years. And Dee knew John well. And even though Dee never judged John for the arrangement that he made with these boys, she always felt sorry for the boys, the hard work that they had to endure. She would oftentimes see him running through the hollers in the summer with no shoes on, in the winter, clothes that didn't fit, jeans with holes, no jackets. And Dee, being the Christian woman that she was, decided that she was going to step in and start providing for these boys. And so she would start to, to lay things out, out on her back porch for the boys to steal. Apple pies, cans of food, shoes in the winter, jackets, hats, sometimes little gifts that would make their hard world just a little bit better. Soon she would start inviting them in to, to dinner and at special events, always serving them homemade chocolate ice cream. These boys, they worked for John, but everybody knew that they were these boys. Virgil, not having much of a life, decided at 17 that he would join the army. He lied about his age on the application, found Hobart drunk in a bar, got him to sign off for it, and soon found himself being shipped off to the Korean War. Billy, always not that far behind Virgil, at 16, did the same. Three years later, Virgil returned home. Billy never did. Virgil lived with the regret that Billy, his younger brother, his best friend, had followed him like he always did in the lie, into the war, and it had cost Billy his life at 16 years old. After returning home, Virgil would marry the daughter of that Christian family, the Dickinson family, Edna, and they would begin a life together. The early years of those marriage was, was rough. Virgil would drink constantly, trying to drown out the torments, the torments of his soul. Edna and Virgil would have a son, and on one particular night, about two years into the marriage, Edna looked at Virgil and she said, enough's enough that I need you to get your life together. If you're not willing to be a dad, if you're not willing to be a father, if you're not willing to be a husband, then I can't have anything to do with you. We're going we're gonna to leave. Virgil had heard the good news of the gospel many times in his life, from Dee, from his wife Edna, from, from others around him, that he had heard that God loved him and that Jesus had died for him. But he had never believed it. But there was something different about this evening, his life was spiraling out of control, 
and he realized that he was becoming the man that he despised. He was becoming Hobart. And in a tremendous act, in that moment of realization, Virgil fell to his knees and prayed that God would save him, that God would save his marriage, and that God would save his family. The next morning, Virgil woke, and the guilt fell away. The drinking stopped. He became a dad, a husband, a man who trusted Jesus. Everything had changed on that night for him. Over the next decade, Virgil would work in the factories by day and and work the farms at night, providing the best that he could for Edna and their now family of four. Life was not easy, but Jesus was at the center. And even though Virgil was this poor farm boy, he had a joy in his heart where torment once lived. He prayed, he read his Bible daily, he went to church whenever the doors were opened. He lived out the love of Jesus in vibrant ways, in ways that many people actually could see. Now in his mid-30s, Virgil was one night eating dinner with his family. And as he's eating dinner with his family, they heard a knock at the door. Virgil got up, excused himself from the table, walked over to the door. And as he opened the door, he saw Hobart. Broke, homeless, no money, nowhere to go, and sick. Hobart asked Virgil if he could maybe offer a little bit of help, give him some money, maybe a meal, a place to stay for the night, and then he would move on in the morning. The love of Jesus through the gospel was all over Virgil. And instead of kicking Hobart to the curb, like he did Virgil and Billy some 20 years before, Virgil took him in and cared for him for the next couple of years until Herbert's passing. An act of love, forgiveness, and faith. See, to Virgil, being a Christian was simple. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. And God would use Virgil in, in many ways throughout the years. A factory worker by day, a farmer by night, with little former education. God knew, or Virgil knew that God had saved him. He knew that God had saved him. And through prayer and faith, he decided that God was calling him to be a church revivalist. And so with a sixth grade education, but with a big God, a lifetime of study of the Bible and prayer and faithfulness, he began to share the gospel with people that had so radically changed his life. God would use him to pastor small, dying churches and country churches. He would go into these churches and he would become their pastor and he would do everything from preaching to lawn mowing. And these small country churches that were dying would go from 20, 25 people to 120, 150 people in a couple of years. And as soon as Virgil saw that the church had enough money and enough people to support a full-time pastor, he would help them find that pastor, and then he would move on to another country church to do it again. All in all, Virgil, God used Virgil to lead thousands of people to Christ and revive ten churches in all. See, Virgil had a very full life. One of his life verses was Proverbs 22, verse 6. You may know this if you're a parent. Train up the way of a child, or train up a child in the way that he should go. And even in his old age, he shall not depart from that. Because of these verses, one of the things that Virgil did was give every one of his grandchildren a red-lettered King James Bible, their very first Bible. And on April 7th, 1985, Edna and Virgil, or as I like to call them, Papa and Grandma Manning, gave me mine. And it was this Bible when, at 12 years old, two friends, Tony and Eric, who led me to Christ, the gospel, using the gospel right out of this Bible. It was on April 7, 1985, as a five-year-old, 
that on my way to church, I stuck my Bible under my arm to head out to the car, and my papa looked at my dad, and he said, I'm telling you right there, that's the next pastor in the family. For the next 14 years, unbeknownst to me, that was his prayer every day. So you can imagine going to college, wanting to be an engineer, having worked in a small plant church, realizing that engineer was not what God had for me, but this taste of ministry excited me, and, and so I decided that I was going to go into the ministry. I, I called my dad up and told him what I had decided, and he said, you need, to call, you need to call your grandfather. I picked up the phone, and I called my papa, and for the next hour, we talked. He was so overjoyed. Of course he was. God had answered 14 years of prayer in my life. We talked for an hour that day. He shared his life story, much like I've shared it with you today. And then he said words that I'll never forget. He said, Matt, in your ministry, in your ministry, always trust Jesus and never forget that the gospel has the power to change lives. It changed mine. A month later, my grandfather would lose his battle to cancer and pass from this earth to spend eternity with the Savior whom he loved. See, listen. This story is the power of the gospel. This story is the mission that God is on to save lives. That, that this power here in this story is the power to change lives now, today, tomorrow, and into the future. And this power, this gospel that we talk about in church world is one of the driving passions of my life. To see people come and know Jesus and for their lives to be changed the way that God changed my grandfather's life, the way God changed my life, the way that God has changed many of your lives. And so if you have your Bible open to Psalm 147, verse 5, it says these words. It says, Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. That this is where the gospel begins for us. That right from the beginning of Scripture, we are introduced to a God who is infinitely awesome, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe. And this infinite awesomely, all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe, we're told that he has created all things. And that this creator God created all things to bring about his glory. Listen, if you were here two weeks ago, we talked about this. We talked about how, how God's ultimate purpose, his primary purpose in this world is to bring about his glory, to, to show the world his awesomeness, to show the world his worth, his, his holiness. That that's what, that's what God is all about. And yet the sad news of the Bible is this. We've belittled that. We've belittled his name. We've belittled his glory. The Bible calls this belittling sin. And the Apostle Paul tells it like this in Romans 3.23. He says, all of us have sinned. And listen, because of that sin, every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God that we're not reflecting the glory the way that we should because of the belittling, because of this sin. See, the reality and the truth of the matter is this, is that every single one of us at one time or another have decided in our lives and actually believe that our way is better than God's way. That we question his authority in our lives. We, we question his direction. We question his rule in our lives. We, we do not give him glory. We do not honor him. We do not give thanks to him for being God. We belittle him. And the crazy thing is, is, is that we do this with the minds and the breath that he has given as a gift to us. Our sin truly knows no depths. That this is the great treason 
of the universe, that me, you, all of us have belittled the name of God. And yet as we read through the scriptures, we, we see this God, this, this amazing, awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing God is just. And he's right and he's holy. And he's not going to allow the creation to discredit, to belittle his name. And because of that sin, that belittling, death enters into the world for every one of us. And as the prophet Isaiah says, that God not being able to spare wrath sends Jesus, his son, in flesh, and he crushes him. Isaiah writes these words, listen to him, it says, For he has pierced us for our transgressions, our sins, and he has crushed him for our iniquity. That God pours out his wrath against creation, against us, onto his son, killing him on the cross. And when all looks hopeless, God does the miraculous. That three days later, God raises Jesus up out of that grave. And that same power, that same power that raises Jesus from the dead is now at work in those who believe. That those who have trusted upon Jesus, that those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, that that power makes believers justified before God. And that little word justified is something that sometimes we don't quite understand, right? It's something sometimes we don't quite get. But that word justified just simply means that we now have right standing before God. That all is forgiven, that all is healed, that we now stand rightly before God. And listen to it, it's not because of our effort. We cannot try hard enough. And it's not because of our works. We can't work hard enough to earn God's favor, to get that right standing before God. And it's not because of our personality or our mom and dad or even our grandma and our grandpa. And it's not because of, it's none of that. It's not because of what you do or don't do. It's not whether you cuss or don't cuss or watch this movie and don't watch this movie or drink this or don't drink this. It has nothing to do with that, that you are justified, that, that we believers stand right before God because of Jesus Christ and the cross and the cross alone. See, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 these words, Since therefore we have now been justified, we now have right standing before God because of his blood, because of Jesus' blood. And so when it comes to your sin, you can't fix it. The bitterness, the anger, the lust, the pride, the, the uh, uh, propensity to do wrong things at the wrong time, you can't fix any of that because you don't possess the power of life and death. You can't resurrect anything. Only Jesus can. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the truth. See, your sin before God is death, but Jesus comes in the power of the resurrection to bring life to every single one of us. And see, the same power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power that took a lion stealing nobody from the haulers of Kentucky and saved him as he dropped to his knees in surrender and made Jesus Christ his Lord. It's the same power that took a 12-year-old who knew nothing about nobody and saved me. It's the same power that if you're here today trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, surrendering your life to him, it's the same power that's at work in you. That's the mission, to bring people home, 
to seek and save those who are lost. That's the gospel. That changes everything. And it's why John, at the very end of his life, as he's looking back on his life and writing out to the churches, he says these words in his third letter, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy, I have no greater desire than to see my children walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in the gospel. I have no greater desire, John says, than to watch my children walk in the power of resurrected life. See, I just need you to know that as I step into this role as your senior pastor, my commitment is to seek and save the lost. It's to bring the gospel into whatever ways that we can in order that people might see and grab a hold of the truth and the life that changes everything. It's why we're so bent on living out the mission that God has given us to serve people toward and connect people to Jesus. That's what we're all about. Because at the end of the day, we know that this world, they need hope. And this world needs joy. And this world needs peace. And this world needs life. And the only way any of that can happen is when we connect people so firmly to Jesus and they walk in the power of resurrected life. Will you bow your heads as I pray for us? At all of our campuses, as we take a moment to pray, I just want to say these words. If, if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, wanting to make an even greater difference than you are right now, Here's what I need you to know. That God, through the gospel of Jesus, through that power, has saved you. And he has put gifts inside of you, certain talents that you have, things that come naturally to you, things that you enjoy. And he wants you to use all of those things in order to serve people with the gospel, in order for their lives to be changed, in order to bring them home. And so, Father... As we pray, we thank you for the life that you've given us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for being the vessel that was crushed so that we might have life. Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for, for saving us. Thank you for, for giving us life. You have set us free. God, we are a church who wants to experience that freedom, that experience that joy and that power and that life. God, I pray that it would be alive in us. Lord, every single person who is a believer here today knows someone in their life who is far away from you, who desperately needs what you have to give. And so, Father, I pray that we would have the courage to use the stories that you've given us Lord, that we would have this, the courage to use the gifts that you've imparted to us. And Lord, that we would use that to serve and to share your love with the people in our lives. God, give us the courage to do that. Glorify yourself in us as we do that. And Father, as we keep praying, Lord, I'm just reminded of Jesus' words where he said that, that my food is to do the will of God and to finish the work that he has sent me to do. 
Lord, and that work that you sent him to do was to seek and to save the lost. And one of the things that I love about you, Jesus, is that time and time again to your life, in your life, that you went to the worst of sinners and that you accepted them right as they were. And you did something for them that they could not do for themselves, that you gave them life. And Father, I know that there are people here today, Lord, who realize the depths of sin in their life. And Lord, they see themselves as a sinner, as every single one of us does. Someone who has belittled the name of God, who has tried to live our own life, who has tried to eat the food of this world and it has left them hungry. And Lord, today they wandered in here and they realized their need of a savior. They realized their need of your presence in their lives. They realize the weight of their sin that weighs so heavily upon their souls. And today you're calling out to them. And you're saying, surrender your life to me. Drop to your knees and surrender your life to me. Admit to me that you're a sinner. And that you're in the need of a savior. And as you, as you trust Jesus in your life, the promise of God is that you will be set free. And so I encourage you to pray that prayer today. And as you do, know, know that on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, that he had you in mind in that moment, that his work was complete. For that, God, we give you thanks. I know for the people at all of our campuses who have surrendered their lives to you today, that you are excited in heaven. Mission accomplished. And all of God's people said, amen.